Fun to spring ahead, huh? <laughs> I actually didn't losing that hour of sleep. I didn't realize that there was daylight saving this morning. I was just like, why is it so hard for me to get up? And then I, like yeah. later in the day, I realized that it was more daylight saving. Yeah. Oh, but you were depending on your phone, so you didn't even have to change a clock. Yeah. I have a friend who drives a different car because he can't stand changing the clock on his car. So he, his family has two cars. So in the four months of winter, he drives one car. And oh, my God. Are you joking? I, I think he's joking. <laughs> but it makes sense to me. Um, there, there's a movement. It's like the only thing I like that Marco Rubio is doing to make daylight saving all year. So... I think that'd be good. I like getting that hour in the winter, but apparently people get depressed. So, what are you guys thinking of uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge? It's like, easier. Is that the basic verdict? Easier. We can do this ourselves. We don't actually have to have class the rest of the semester. Manageable. <laughs> okay. Well, well, I hope you guys um, liked your first acquaintance with Milton. The, it's hard. But it's, there's stuff there that's just great. And what happens uh, often with Blake, always with Blake really, is that the hard stuff um, gets populated by the great stuff. And it just, there, there are moments in it, there's that great, that great passage, there's a moment in each day that Satan cannot find. Um, and there are lines that are just amazing even in a first reading of Milton, even if you're completely baffled by it. Milton is as hard as Blake gets, but not as long as Blake is hard. Um, that would be the Four Zoas and Jerusalem. Uh, the Four Zoas are, were, is an abandoned work by Blake, and then um, some of the Zoas appear, or some of the, that, those ideas appear in Milton, and then after that comes Jerusalem, which is a reworking of the four Zoas. And it's really, really, really wonderful, but it does mean that you read it many times and that, that the parts that make sense and that are beautiful and striking and powerful expand as you read it and as you get used to it. So that means that your final exam will simply be, as I was just mentioning, entirely in Milton and you'll just have to know it inside and out. Oh, hi, Ariel. You weren't mentioning that. This was a joke at Ariel's expense. Um, she gets to come in and hear this. Hear this shocking news. You know better? Third class you're taking you taken from me, so you so you know better. Okay, good. All right. I didn't know better clearly. Well, it's only your second class. That's why. All right. So uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge. Um, they were best friends. Coleridge is two years younger than Wordsworth, and they were neighbors, and they decided to put this book together called Lyrical Ballads, which we talked about at the very start of this class, and the idea of making ball putting ballads and lyrics in the same, putting them together, um, making them making poems that are a combination of ballads and lyrics. And we talked a bit about supernatural ballads. The way we're going to be reading the, the preface to lyrical ballads, which Wordsworth wrote, and which is one of the great works of English literary criticism. And one of the things that he tells us there 
when he basically says that Lyrical Ballads was published anonymously. And so, why do you think that was? Let me, let me put that as a question. Why do you think it was published anonymously? Besides the fact that people did publish books anonymously. But why in particular would Lyrical Ballads be a good work to publish anonymously? Yeah, thanks. I'm not sure, but I think that it adds like, to the supernatural quality that it's just a speaker with no name and they're kind of out of nowhere, these strange tales that are in the tradition of, like, stories passed down without mm-hmm. a clear author. Yeah, so you said speaker, singular, but... Speaker is... Yeah. Sorry. No, I'm, no, you might mean speaker. That is, the anonymous publication could mean either that it's one person who's publishing this book anonymously, or that it is a collection which is what a book like a book with a what a book with the title ballads in it would be it would be a collection of ballads and so it could be many different poets who have written poems like this that are collected and collected in this collection called lyrical ballads like Percy's Relics which we mentioned last class and mentioned also at the beginning of the term remember Percy's Relics are the collection of ballads that he did of um that he collected that were anonymous and that people recited to him and he wrote them down and he published them in three volumes and they were extraordinarily influential. Walter Scott, who people know who he is? So Ivanhoe, not familiar? So what do you know about Ivanhoe? I forgot. That it's familiar. Okay, Walter Scott was a friend of Wordsworth and Coleridge's and also of the extraordinarily bad poet Robert Southey, although you probably know one poem or of one poem by Robert Southey, which is the Pied Piper. But Southey, Wordsworth, and Coleridge, Coleridge and Southey were actually best friends, and the three of them were very close friends. They're called the Lake Poets partly because they ended up moving to the Lake District and living near each other and writing poetry in the Lake District in England. And we'll be reading some of the Lake District poetry later on. The Lake District is Northern England. Do people know what it is? Has anyone been there? So there, it's a area in Northern England, Northwestern England, where there are lots and lots of really gorgeous lakes and mountains and and. It's even now an amazing place to go hiking and to go visit for natural beauty. And um, it's relatively unspoiled and undeveloped. Although Wordsworth late in life complained that the invention of the railroads was going to destroy the Lake District. Because in, in the, when, while we're reading, in the works that we're reading, railroads hadn't, come, hadn't been invented yet. But once they were invented, they were completely revolutionary. They were as, as big or a bigger revolution as, compu- as home computers. They changed everything. And suddenly, the whole conception of geography that people had was different. And Wordsworth lived until that happened. And so what he saw was um, tourists coming from... London to the Lake District in very great numbers and very easily, and and he saw industrialization um, spreading there. Um, Before, however, railroads came, the Lake District was a rural place, very, very hard to get to, from the urban centers of England, 
and, in, and this is still pre-industrial England, and spectacularly beautiful. As I say, it's still very, very beautiful, and it's a big tourist. It is a big tourist attraction now, but that's had the result of um, England working really hard to preserve it. So Wordsworth, Coleridge, and Southey, and also Sir Walter Scott, were near neighbors there, and they were friends, and, and Wordsworth and Coleridge and Southey were called the Lake Poets. And the, um, their friend Walter Scott was a poet. You actually almost certainly know a couplet by him, which is, oh, what a tangled web, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Oh, I know that from you. Yeah. Oh, okay, well then. <laughs> Good. <laughs> to which some wag in the 20th century added, but when we've practiced quite a while, how vastly we improve the style. So... That's, um, it's a good criticism of, of Scott's two lines. Anyhow, Scott was a poet, and a really, really good poet. But then he read Lord Byron, who was in the younger generation of romantic poets, and he said, Byron is trying to do, or Byron is doing what I'm trying to do, and he's better. And who read Byron? Sir Walter Scott. Okay. So Scott then became a novelist, and he's very, very, or was very, very famous for his novels. He would be in the top, not in the top five, but certainly in the top 20 English novelists. And his most famous novel, which has been made into movies several times, is Ivanhoe, and he is, he basically wrote historical novels. He was the first historical novelist ever. That is, writing novels that were set in the, in a past that was historical, not, not some distant fairy tale past, but an historical past, with um, doing research as to how people lived and what they did then, and um, writing, writing romances and adventure novels in that mode. And Ivanhoe is his most famous, probably because so many movies have been made of it, but there's one called Waverly, which was probably the most famous in his day. Yeah. yeah so, okay. So, and Scott also, he wrote long narrative poems, which are, I think, really, really wonderful. And he also wrote um, uh, ballad-like poems. And another really cool thing that he did was he wrote epigraphs for his novels. That is, he would, he would attribute them to an old play or to an old ballad or something, but he was actually writing them. So you would see an epigraph. So in a way, he was... Without Walter Scott, there would be no George R.R. R. Martin. That's certainly true. George R.R. R. Martin is the, is the contemporary inheritor of Scott and of imagining writing that kind of novel. Not that Scott is anything like exciting, as exciting as Game of Thrones, but that ultimately derives from a form that Scott invented. But the point here is that then, so he's writing ballads, um, and they are sounding like anonymous ballads. Uh, perhaps the most famous is one called Proud Maisie, which is really, really great. But 
people are getting interested in ballads, the Lake District is the place where relic, that's one of the areas where Percy and his relics is collecting ballads. It's ballads in particular that are north of England and Scotland. That's where, the, that's where you have this very intense oral culture with ballads being passed down, down the generations. And that's where Wordsworth and Coleridge and Southey um, end up living. Byron dedicated Don Juan, his, his great, great poem, Don Juan, to Southey. It's a very, very mean dedication. It, um, it's not a dedication. Well, it would make you famous forever, but Byron has complete contempt for Southey, so he writes a very mean and hilariously funny dedication to uh, Don Juan to it. All right, so the idea of the title lyrical ballads, then, is something like Anonymous, and because it's published as a book and these are not known ballads and it's not that they're somehow being presented as collected, they could be by one person or one kind of person or one kind of mind, or they could be by more than one. In fact, they're by two. Some of the poems, a couple of the poems, Wordsworth and Coleridge helped each other with. That is that on the whole, we attribute these poems without a second thought either to Wordsworth or Coleridge, but <coughs> Wordsworth wrote a stanza or two of some of Coleridge's poems, and Coleridge uh, at least gave Wordsworth advice and probably some lines on some of Wordsworth's poems. As I say, they were best friends. Yeah? Um, I heard once, I read once, that Dorothy may have helped on a lot of Wordsworth's poetry. That's I probably know. overstated. Okay. Um, Dorothy Wordsworth is, is William Wordsworth's sister. And she was a brilliant woman. Her journal is really fantastic. And she was a huge supporter of Wordsworth and a commentator and responder to his poetry. It is um, a nice thought for a feminist um, attitude towards these poems that she to give her as much credit as possible. One should. And she deserves an awful lot of credit because she was just a great writer. Wordsworth certainly read her journals and used some of the imagery from her journals. Not He didn't steal it. They, they talked about this all the time. They lived, um, the, the, the community that they lived in, Wordsworth and Coleridge and um, the sisters they were involved with as well as Wordsworth's own sister and so on. It was a very, very tight-knit, extraordinarily literary community. Um, that is, they were extraordinarily literate. They talked about literature all the time. And they read each other's work and recited it and um, uh, discussed what they just written that day and so forth. So there's um, a very intense sharing of poetic alleles, for sure. But the to the extent that we want to ascribe poet, poems to particular poets, we can do it as much with Wordsworth and Coleridge as with pretty much anyone. Um, you know, as a, pretty much as much as we can do it with Blake, pretty much as much as we can do it with um, any modern poet. So, but Dorothy Wordsworth, without Dorothy Wordsworth, things would have been extre extremely different. There's no question about that. And her journals are fascinating to read. So that is, she, she's a person to be interested in, for sure, as is um, Sarah Coleridge and as also Coleridge's descendants. Coleridge's granddaughter was a really good poet as well. 
So nevertheless, Lyrical Ballads is mainly Wordsworth and Coleridge, and what Wordsworth will say in the preface to Lyrical Ballads, what he will let us know later, is that he and Coleridge decided that in writing ballads, they wanted to write both completely natural stories, stories that were that had didn't have that ballad element of the supernatural, that with dead people speaking or ghosts coming out of the grave or crows and ravens discussing how terrible this naive young person, how terribly this naive young person is going to die. Those are the supernatural elements of ballads. And also natural ballads, which is the revolutionary thing, which is to tell a story that is not a story in which some, some in which there's some supernatural intervention, not a story in which there's in in which the ballad is powerful because something really spooky happens. And so they finally agreed that what they would do is Wordsworth would write the natural ballads, the ones in which um, supernatural things didn't happen, and Coleridge would write the ballads in which supernatural things did happen. And so what's the most obvious example of supernatural ballad? The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, in which death and life and death um, cast dice for the mariner's soul, in which their are voices coming from the sea, in which the, the um, ocean um, drives the ship without um, wind and so on. And um, so that's an obvious supernatural ballad. Um, it's not the only one. Later, um, we'll be reading Christabel, which is an unfinished supernatural poem. Um, and um, that's what Coleridge was interested in. Wordsworth, therefore, is interested in the natural one. So most of the lyrical ballads are Wordsworth's, not Coleridge's. Yeah? I think Wordsworth also read some supernatural ones. What are you thinking of? Um, the one, I think it's Lizzie Blake and... And, uh, and Harry Gill. Yeah. Doesn't, she curses him. That's kind of a supernatural. Yeah, but does, does the curse have supernatural? So let's take a look at that. Um, I'm going to get it out of this version. I'm going to try and get it out of this version. Um... Um, so, does, so notice that it's uh, what's its subtitle or what's the explanation? A true, a true story. Okay. Um, so, why don't we just go around the room and read it? So, Nicole, why don't you start? Goody Blake and Harry Gill, a true story. Oh, what's the matter? What's the matter? What is it that ails young Harry Gill? That evermore his teeth they chatter, 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 chatter still. Of waistcoats, Harry has no lack. 
Good duffel gray and flannel fine. He has a blanket on his back and coats enough to smother nine. Okay, so just quickly, first of all, what does goody mean? Do you guys have a note on that? Yeah, so it's like, do you know the Hawthorne story, Young Goodman Brown? Oh, so, my brother keeps... To, oh, yeah, he's learning about that in school. Yeah. Sorry? My brother's reading that in school. Okay. Yeah, it's by so, the same guy who wrote Scarlet Letter, right? Yes, Hawthorne. Nathaniel Hawthorne. Yeah, so um, it's just a... Ter- it's an honorific. It's a, it's a rural or a country honorific. Um, okay, so... What's happening to Harry Gill? He has a lot of coats. He has a lot of coats, but... He's still cold. He's still chattering. All right. Um, okay, pick up from there, Ryan. In March, December, and in July, which is all the same, Harry Gill, the neighbors tell and tell you truly, his teeth, they chatter, chatter still. At night, at morning, and at noon, which is all the same, Harry Gill, beneath the sun, beneath the moon, his teeth, they chatter, chatter still. So what, why is that stanza in there? I mean, it tells us it's repeating how cold he is and how often he's cold. Um, narratively, what's going on with that stanza in terms of narrative structure? And there's an element of time. Sorry? An element of time. There's an element of time, yeah. It happens all year long. It doesn't matter when in the year it is. Um... Mm-hmm. Okay, right. They they all know this. Um, what else? Well, just to extend the other characters, it's emphasizing that the story is in oral circulation in the community. Yeah. Okay. And what about as far as narrative structure goes? What is it we want to know? Why he's there. Yeah. And what are we assuming? This this might be why why it seems to have a supernatural hook. That is, that he's called all the time. He's chattering and, chill, and, and chilled all the time. Seen the yeah, so we want to know what it is. So it's a, it's a good, narratively, it's a good way to begin a story. That is, that there's something going on, and he's different from everyone else. <laughs> and presumably, we're now going to get an account of what makes him different. From everybody else, yeah. You remember that you wrote the story by Susan Zontag about AIDS, where okay. it's like it's just the infected person's friends who are talking about him. Mm-hmm. I, forgot I don't remember. I don't remember that story. Yeah, it's a really good story. Okay. And I think it has it has the same structure. Okay. Yeah, but in prose. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a pretty good structure. It's you could say it's a standard structure, meaning that is a good thing rather than a bad thing, which is that it is a standard structure in narrative that when you get an account of someone who is not like everyone else and who is an object of fascination because it there's no immediate explanation of how they're not like everybody else what the story is doing is making a promise to the reader that that you will find out what's different about this person that that narratively something had to happen that would make 
a person like this, which means that it has to be interesting enough, it has to go deep enough, it has to be something which captures the mind of a person enough that they would turn into someone like Harry Gill. And if it can do that to him, it should be interesting to us. In other words, it wouldn't be a good story, which is he was, he was shaking and cold all the time, and obviously something um, is really, really bothering him, and then it turned out that what was really bothering him is that his buttons didn't match. And the point is that, well, maybe it's bothering him, but it's not interesting that that's bothering him so much. Yeah, and that's the point, that it should be something where you would feel that if you were in his position, it could do it to you. And, of course, we don't see anything that would do it to us. I mean, I'm just talking, this is basic narrative strategy, that we don't um, immediately see what would do it to us, so we need to know from the story. That is, the story is giving us a kind of outcome and then saying, now you, can't, you don't know from the outcome what brought him to this outcome. That's what's mysterious about it. So here is the story that will tell you what brought him to this outcome. So um, pick up from there, because here's where he starts off then. Young Harry, Ryan? Oh, not Ryan. I'm sorry, Max. Young Harry was a lusty drover, and who so stout of limb as he? His cheeks were red as ruddy clover. His voice was like the voice of thirty. What does that mean? What? Like, like when, you're, when your voice is really hoarse, it sounds like there's two people talking at the same time. No. <laughs> I like that idea. It may be two, but not three. Yeah. Do you know that Wallace Stevens in 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird, one of the ways of looking at a blackbird? Do people know that poem? It's a great, great, great poem. It's, it's not by any means Stevens' greatest, but it's one of his most anthologized because it is a really good exposition of imagism, and it's haiku-like in a lot of ways. So 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. Um, the title has been used over and over again. Um, Henry Louis Gates Jr. has a book called 13 Ways of Looking at a Black Man, which is a really important um, collection of his work on race in America. But 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird, the first one is, among the 20 snowy mountains, the only moving thing was the eye of the blackbird. So that's one way of looking at a blackbird. Among the 20 snowy mountains, the only, thi the only moving thing was the eye of the blackbird. So you can, you can feel how haiku-like um, an image that is, or that that's, um, belongs to the school of poetry called imagistic poetry. So one of the ways of looking at Blackbird is, and this is where this is coming from, the speaker of one of the ways, like five or six, says, I was of three minds, like a tree, in which there are three blackbirds. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of funny and sort of, sort of um, droll. But, yeah, maybe if you're a horse, it sounds like you have two voices, because, <laughs> yeah. But three sounds a little excessive. <laughs> So what else could a voice of three mean? Loud. loud, yes. Yes. There are those professors like me who have a voice of one, very reasonable. And then there are other professors here who have a voice of three, as I'm sure you've noticed. 
And um, so Harry's got a voice of three. His voice was like the voice of three. He boomed. Go on. Because he's a drover. He's a sell. Yeah. What's a drover? Explain. In the footnote, it says he leads to market, so I imagine he's a sell as well. Yeah, when cattle drives are driven by drovers. So if you ever watch a Western where there's a cattle drive, <laughs> it's the drovers who drive the cattle to market. So they have to yell. <coughs> they not only, it's not only that he's selling at the market, it's that he's yelling at the dogs and at the cattle to keep them going in line. So go on. Old Goody Blake was old and poor. Ill-fed she was and thinly clad. And any, and any man who passed her door might see how poor a hut she had. So they're the two main characters, Goody Blake and Harry Gill. And he's a young, powerful man not shivering back then. So this furthers the question, what's causing him to shiver so much? Meg, do you want to pick up from there? Sure. All day she spun in her poor dwelling, and then her three hours of work a night, alas, was hardly worth the telling. It would not pay for candlelight. This woman dwelt in Dorsetshire. Her hut was on a cold hillside. And in that hundred coals are dear, for they come by... Or they come far by winter time. Okay, so paraphrase that last part. That it's, like it's, um, it's expensive to heat anything because it takes something. Because, I'm sorry, because... It, it, it's hard to get the coal to heat something, right? Like it's yeah, I need a voice of three here. <laughs> I got about a third. Okay. Um, yeah, it's hard to get the coal there in that country. Coals are deer. What does deer mean? British use of deer. No. Precious and hard to find. Almost. If you go to England now and something is dear, it means expensive. It's English for expensive. You never heard that? Oh, it does make sense because in French it's the same. Oh, is yeah. Share. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It is. It is. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so this is too dear for me, or, you know, oh, no, that I, I can't buy that dress, it's too dear. <laughs> like an American would say, well, if you think it's so dear, you should buy it. But what it means is expensive. So, but, but notice this is that this is not ballad-like in its tone. It's a little bit more modern. Do you hear the difference between something like all day she spun in her poor dwelling and then her three hours work at night? and it was hardly worth the telling would not pay for candlelight. That could be older poetry, but her hut was on a cold hillside, and in that country, coals are dear. That's a, do you hear a slight difference in the modernity of the second part of that? It's okay if you don't, but it would, but it would be um, a thing to, to try to notice. Is it like the syntax? It's a syntax. It's the reference to what kind of audience would be thinking about that country? Sorry, I'm asking that wrong. If you have a phrase like, in that country, calls are dear, you're talking to what kind of audience in saying a line like that? Urban Sorry? Urban people. people an like urban people, urban audience, an audience that knows that there are different customs in different countries. Maybe one major distinction that you can make is between people who... Um, take where they live as 
the way everyone lives and people who understand that there are different places with different customs, different needs, different desires, different practices, and so on. And what that just means is that one audience is more cosmopolitan than the other. That is, and ballad audiences, if you read a ballad, it's rarely going to be directed towards a cosmopolitan audience. That is, a ballad is not going to be... Um, and then there were Twak Cobris, and in case you don't know, in that country, Cobris were regarded as birds of ill omen. Um, that's, you wouldn't get that information. Ballads don't give you... We can infer information by reading a standard ballad. There are things we can infer about the world of the ballad, but it's not that the ballad means to be informative to a readership or an audience other than the audience in the place that the ballad occurs and applies to and so on. So in that country calls her dear, that really feels like a printed line. You wouldn't have a line like that in an oral ballad. Yeah? Are there ballads we should read to get a feel for the revolutionary aspect of these ones? There could be, and... Um, what you should definitely read is The Ballad of Sir Patrick Spence, which Coleridge actually refers to and uses as an epigraph in Dejection and Ode, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. So I'll send it out to you. I can. Of Sir Patrick Spence. But I'll send it. But why don't you. I'm just trying to think if there's a quick ballad. What, yeah, why don't you get up the Trois Copres? Can I use your computer? Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll do Proud Maisie also. Uh, damn, Windows. Uh, can you just give me a new tab? I don't want to lose. Okay, so um, this is Scott's... This is Scott writing a ballad that sounds like um, an old-style ballad. Open link, come on. How do people live with Windows? I just don't understand. So uh, Proud Maisie is this. And uh, what, so this isn't a novel of Scott's. And what happens is there's a mad woman in the novel. And she sings this ballad um, out of nowhere. So it's not like in the context of the novel it makes sense. There happens to be a mad woman. She's a minor character. And what characterizes her as mad partly is that she sings this strange ballad. And it has no... It's, it's like someone turning on the radio in a, in a movie and you hear a good song and it's just something in the movie that is an added pleasure is hearing a good song in the movie and it has no thematic or other meaning or no necessary other meaning. So you know how when you go to a movie if you stay for the credits and there's a whole list of all the songs and you haven't noticed three quarters of them? Um, that's what ballads were like in Scott's words. So Proud Maisie. Proud Maisie, proud Maisie is in the wood, walking so early. Sweet Robin sits on the bush, singing so rarely. Tell me, thou bonny bird, when shall I marry me? When six broad gentlemen, Kirkward, shall carry ye. So she asks, tell me. She, so of course she talks to the bird, because it's a ballad. And it's not, and in that country, women talk to birds. That would make it modern. 
but you don't have that here. So it's a ballot, so you don't have to say that. And it just, as soon as she talks to the bird, that's what people do in ballads. So Proud Maisie is in the wood walking so early. Sweet Robin, that is a robin, sits on the bush singing so rarely. Tell me, thou bonny bird, when shall I marry me? When six broad gentlemen, Kirkward, shall carry ye. So what does that mean? Yeah, so when six brawny, that is broad, gentlemen, carry you towards the churchyard, Kirkward shall carry ye. Who makes the bridal bed, birdie? Say truly, the gray-headed sexton that delves the grave duly. So who makes the bridal bed? Who will make my bridal bed up for me? And the answer is the gray-headed sexton. Who's a sexton? Yeah, who's going to uh, perform the funeral? <laughs> the glowworm or graven stone shall light thee steady. The owl from the steeple sing, welcome, proud lady. So that's the whole poem. That's spooky. Yeah. Yeah, so that's ballads for me. Or um, I'll just do one other. These newfangled computers. Oh, no, why just, am I? Okay, yeah, you can just type it right into there. It'll Google fetch it for you, yeah. What is Google? <laughs> okay, so here's one called... Uh, oh, I see, you have these three different things you can add. Um, so it's a very famous one called Lord Randall. Anyone know this? They're actually, I think, Pentangle and their other... Um, um, during what Martin Mull calls the great, folk the great folk scare of the late 1960s, when it looked like folk might displace rock and roll, and everyone was terrified that this would happen. Thank God it didn't. But during the great folk scare of the 1960s, there were a lot of um, music groups that would set ballads to contemporary music, to folk songy music. So here's, here's one. Oh, where hae ye been, Lord Randall, my son? Oh, where hae ye been, my handsome young man? I've been to the wildwood, mother. Make my bed soon, for I'm weary with hunting and fain would lie down. So who's the... You know I, I, mean? I know a folk song that sounds similar to this. Yeah, I'm sure it's based on this. Uh -huh. It's like it's by a really famous person who like won the Nobel Prize in literature. That would be Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Yeah. 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 It's like where, where, where have you been? Like yeah. my blue-eyed son. So I know where yeah. you've been, my hands. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. He's writing in that mode. He was he was part of the great folk scare. Um, then he just switched sides to rock and roll. Yeah, which probably <laughs> saved us all. You know, I don't credit Bob Dylan with a lot, but I credit him with that. You don't like him? No. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's, it's... Is he a bad person? No. I was having a conversation with someone yesterday that I really want to have a conversation with Bob Dylan because I think he's so cool. He didn't show up to his Nobel Prize. That's why he's cool. That's so dumb. That's why But then he plagiarized his speech. He plagiarized his speech? He did. He plagiarized his statement, yeah. He gave a statement later and some of it was, was actually grabbed from, ripped from Wikipedia. It's kind of stupid. But at any rate, no, I totally get that he's a great, great man, and people who, whose musical tastes I utterly and completely respect make fantastically good cases for him and think he's just great. I just can't like him. 
I've tried. I really have. Yeah. Voice is no. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. See, people. I. But I also like him on principle as a Minnesotan. So oh well, there is that. Like, I, it's the rules. I don't have an option. Yeah. Do you like John Berryman? If I've heard. He no, he's a he's a poet also from Minnesota. Um. I have a friend who thinks Bob Dylan is a fantastically great singer, and he agrees that he has a whiny voice. But he thinks that, nevertheless, what he does, um, what he can communicate through singing is great. So, look, I, I'm perfectly prepared to believe I'm wrong about Bob Dylan. So this is, this is I don't... Have you listened to his latest albums where he's just doing standards? No. They're incredible. If you okay. like Ballad because he's like, we have this lost era of American music. And okay. Just, well, that's that's it. He doesn't write his own songs anymore. Yeah. He, he just, like, he sings these old standards. It's, I think they're like incredible. it. Really? I think you butchered that. I think like a lot of people. I think you know the original. Yeah. Yeah. From the heart. Yeah. Now it's like really dead. Well, you seen about Love and Lost. You really do. Have you guys seen the movie Inside Lewin Davis? Yes, that's really good. Yeah, and that's partly about him. And, yeah. Um, yeah. All right. It's not a long time. I have to rewatch it, actually. It premiered here, actually. I think it what? had one of its first, maybe not its first American showing, but one of its first American showings at Brandeis. And I got to talk to, what's his name? Um, what is his name? The star? Uh, I don't know why there's a blank on it. He is also in... in um, that HBO series about Scarsdale, about um, integrating Scarsdale. What's his name? About Scarsdale? Yeah, integrating Scarsdale. Um, what, is what does that mean, integrating Scarsdale? It's a historical... <laughs> God. And he was also in um, Ex Machina, the star of Ex Machina. Uh, yeah. I've never seen this. All right. His name will come back to me. Um, you met the star of the Lounge? Well, I asked him a question. He he came to the to the <laughs> showing at Brandeis. Did, um, what is it? Which? Who's the star of Inside Lewin Davis? I'm just blanking on his name. <laughs> All right, who's the star of Ex Machina? I don't know who I'm, who you're thinking. They're two. They're two main male characters. What are their names? This is Nathan and Caleb are the first two men who show up. Who? Characters. Nathan and Caleb. Uh, the name of the yeah, that's the name of the characters. What are the names? I can't remember which one is Nathan and which one is Caleb. No. Oscar Isaac. Yeah, Oscar Isaac. Thank you. Oh, thank God. He's in the Star Wars. Yeah, he's in the Star Wars. That's what I needed. Yeah. Okay. I got to ask him a question here. That's that's the important thing. I think it changed his career. I think I think people heard my question, heard his answer thought those two people are just totally amazing and they flipped a coin and decided to make Oscar Isaac famous. I think that's what happened. I'm pretty sure. So... Hey, what, what did you ask him? Um, I basically made a comment on the movie and its relation to the Odyssey and then my question was, which, because... Um, oh yeah, that's another one, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So the Coen brothers great, yeah. had also made Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That's the Odyssey. And that's the Odyssey, but there are moments in Inside Lewin Davis that are referring to where our brother, where, where art thou, and there's a reference to the Odyssey. So I basically said that, and then I said, so I guess my question is neat, huh? And uh, 
His answer was, yeah, that is really neat. <laughs> what? That must have been really life-changing. I, I, I think so. I think so. I mean, it was like the one time in his life where he didn't, like, act. He just responded completely <laughs> without any fake passion or interest, the way actors do. Anyhow, um, so where have you been, Lord Randall, my son, or where have you been, my handsome young man? I've been to the wildwood, mother. Make my bed soon, for I'm weary with hunting and fain would lie down. Where got ye your dinner, Lord Randall, my son? Where got you your dinner, my handsome young man? I dined with my true love, mother. Make my bed soon, for I'm weary with hunting and fain would lie down. What got ye to your dinner, Lord Randall, my son? What got ye to your dinner, my handsome young man? That is, so what did you eat for dinner? I got eels boiled in brew, mother. Make my bed soon, for I'm weary with hunting, and fain would lie down. What became of your bloodhounds, Lord Randall, my son? What became of your bloodhounds, my handsome young man? Oh, they swelled and they died, mother. Make my bed soon, for I'm weary with hunting, and fain would lie down. Oh, I fear you are poisoned, Lord Randall, my son. Oh, I fear you are poisoned, my handsome young man. Oh, yes, I am poisoned, mother. Make my bed soon, for I'm sick at the heart, and I fain would lie down. Sorry? Yeah. Um, or um, Edward, I'll give you one more. Um, These are examples of what ballads yeah. really are. Yeah. Um, no, please find me this ballad. Um, so he's that, but the point is that. Um, I'm weary with hunting and fain would lie down, means in his grave, not in his bed. At first you think it's, okay, he's been hunting, and now he's tired. Um, but that turns out not to mean, not to be what it means. Why does, I wrote, why does, and we get daylight savings happen, and why does it hurt when I pee? Um, <laughs> That's not, I don't, I didn't look those up. Those are most looked at things in Google. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so here's here's one more. Um, this is called Edward Edward. Oh, modern translation. Fuck you. Old Scots version. Oh, so they've actually done it in Old Scots. It's okay. Why does your brand say drop with lewd? You so, can read that? It's not hard. I mean, it's just... just it starts with Q-U-H-Y. Q-U-H turns into W. That's a standard um, substitution. Okay. So, um, let's see how... Like K in Spanish what? Yeah, exactly. Oh. Um, you say that in the same way that I say things when I have no context for the fact that I'm saying I just make it up. <laughs> 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 So, why does your brand so drop with blood? Why is your sword dripping with blood? Edward, Edward, why does your brand say drop with blood? And why say see sad king Zio? So, why are you going so sadly? Why, why do you look so sad in the way you're going? 
Oh, I have killed my hawk so good, mother, mother. Oh, I have killed my hawk so good, and I had no more but he, oh. So, why is your sword dripping with blood? Answer, I killed my hawk, and he was my only one. Your hawk's blood was never so red. I know this story. <laughs> Should I say it? No! Okay, no, no, no. Spoiler! <laughs> and I bet. <laughs> Your hawk's blood was never so red, Edward, Edward. Your hawk's blood was never so red. My dear son, I tell thee, oh. Oh, I have killed my red roan steed, mother, mother. Oh, I have killed my red roan steed that erst was so fair and free, oh. So it used to be so fair and so free, oh. Your steed was old, and you have got more, Edward, Edward. Your steed was old, and you have got more. Some other... Dulzidrio, so some other dole is causing you to cry. Oh, I have killed my father dear, mother, mother. Oh, I have killed my father dear, alas, and way is me, oh. And what in penance will you do for that, Edward, Edward? So she doesn't say, you killed your father, oh my God, because you don't do that in balance. It's just there's a kind of inevitability in what's going to happen. So, and what penance will you do for that, Edward, Edward? And what penance will you do for that, my dear son? Now tell me, oh. I'll set my feet in yonder boat, mother, mother. I'll set my feet in yonder boat, and I'll fare over the sea, oh. Over the sea, comma, oh. And what will you do with your towers, and your house, Edward, Edward, and what will you do with your towers and your house that were so fair to see, oh? I'll let them stand till down they fall, mother, mother, I'll let them stand till down they fall, for here never more shall I be, oh, or may I be, oh. And what will you leave to your kids and your wife? It's bairns, which means kids. And what will you leave to your bairns and your wife, Edward, Edward? And what will you leave to your bairns and your wife when you go over the sea? Oh. So what's he going to leave them? The world's room. Let them beg through life, mother, mother. The world's room. Let them beg through life. For them never more will I see. Oh. And finally, the last stanza. And what will you leave to your own mother, dear, Edward, Edward? So what do we think of this mother? So your mother? Is that what you said? <laughs> so basically he says, well, I killed my hawk. My sword is red because I killed my hawk. Nah, that's not why it's red. Uh, I killed my horse. No, that's not why it's red. Well, I killed my father. Okay, and so what are you going to do? Um, this is his mother asking him. So finally, the last stanza. And what will you leave to your own mother dear, Edward, Edward? And what will you leave to your own mother dear, my dear son, now tell me, oh. The curse of hell from me shall you bear, mother, mother. The curse of hell from me shall you bear. Such counseling you gave to me, oh. I knew you can see it coming yeah. a mile away. Yeah, so it, we find out in the very last stanza that his mother told him to kill his father. But obviously that doesn't work in any naturalistic story because she wouldn't be asking him those questions and wouldn't be pretending that she didn't know why his sword was dripping with blood. And 
so what's happening is the ballot is giving us the information as though the characters within the ballot are turning into what they turn into as the questions are answered. I don't know if that's a good way of putting it, but the real, the real point here is that the mother is, is creepy and uncanny, but it's not, it doesn't make naturalistic sense to have her asking questions like this. The questions are only there for us. We want to know the answers, and she is the character who poses the questions. And then the surprise at the end is not only is she the character who poses the questions, but she is the one who's guilty of the of the of of, of fomenting this murder. And so that's a ballad-like story. It's creepy. It's this isn't actually supernatural, but it's close to it because she's such an unnatural mother. Um, and willing to destroy her husband and her son out of her own greed. We start feeling that when she says, so what are you going to do with all your stuff when you leave? And what will you give to me since, thank goodness, you're disinheriting your children and your wife? But the, it's not actually supernatural the way, the way Proud Maisie is, but, it is, but it's close to it. Let's just see if we can do one more. The tw- do you not like these? Yeah. Do they all have questions in them? Um, I don't think so. I'm really sorry to see um, the distinction because yeah. the questions the characters ask in the words where they are pertinent and they are from people who wouldn't know them more. Right, exactly. Okay, so this is the Trois Corbys, and if you want to hear that. As I was walking all alone, I heard Trois Corbys making a moan. So I, there were two crows that were um, making a moaning sound. I mean, it's Scottish. It's, if only um, Noah were in this class, yeah. it would be perfect. Noah read some, some uh, Scottish... He read Burns. Which he, read also the, he read the mouth, the mouth yeah, to, to a, a mouse. mouse. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, as I was walking all alone, I heard Twa Corbys making a moan. Captain, <laughs> the engines won't take it. All right, that's Scotty in Star Trek. You're too young for that. As I was walking all alone, I heard Trois Corbys making a moan, a moan. The tain, that is the one, unto the tither, unto the other, did say, what shall we gang and dine the day? Uh, sorry, where shall we gang and dine the day? Um, so where shall we go now and, and what should we eat? In behind yon old fail dyke, I wot there lies a new slain knight. So back there behind that old frail dyke, there's a, there's a knight newly slain, and nobody kens that he lies there but his hawk, his hound, and his lady fair. So no, no one knows the knight is there except his hawk, his hound. They all have hawks and hounds, and his lady fair. His hound is to the hunting game, his hawk to fetch the wild fowl hame. So his hound, his hound is out hunting, so he doesn't care that the knight is lying there. His hawk is um, going after some wild fowl. It's hawking after some fowl. His lady, where do you think she is? So three people... <laughs> I know where she is. <laughs> three, three beings know that the... So, the, so look, the crows are saying, um, or the ravens are saying, where should, we, where should we go for a meal? And one says, I have an idea. There's a new slain knight behind that wall. Uh, we could eat him because no one knows he's there except his hawk, his hound, and his lady. The hound is gone hunting. 
the hawk is looking for birds to hunt. And where's his lady, do you think? If you were writing a ballad in this tone, where would you put her? Can you repeat the important details again? So, three beings know that there's a dead knight. Okay, what's our question? He's a newly slain knight. So what's our question? Yeah, that would be our question. But the um, doesn't look like the Corbys. That's not big on their minds. What's big on their minds is smorgasbord of night. Lots of nice smoked night. Recently smoked night. So tasty. And they don't have to worry that, and almost no one knows that the night is lying there. Only three beings do. And we don't have to worry about these three beings because the hound is out hunting and the hawk is out fowling. That is, the hawk is going after birds because it's a bird of prey. And the lady is... I don't know about the where, but guilty would be the word that yeah. comes to mind. Like that's, you know, I don't know that where matters. But yeah, but, but you want the parallel. So yeah. you have to put her somewhere. She's... Well, can I say... Yes. Well, it's like, okay, wait, I'll get it ahead. It's like, the other ones are hunting animals that they can eat, kind of. Well, actually, that parallel doesn't fully work. But she's with another man. Mm -hmm. So, his, <laughs> his hound is to the... <laughs> his hound is to the hunting gain. His hawk to fetch the wild fowl hame. His lady's tain another mate, so we may make our dinner sweet. So she's up with another mate, so we may make our dinner sweet. You'll sit on his white house bane, that is, you'll sit on um, his, his main bone, and I'll pike out his bonny blue eye. So I'll, I'll pick out his, his beautiful blue eyes. With Ilaka, his golden hair, we'll thick our nest when it grows bare. So we'll take a lock of his hair and, turn, and, and um, line our nest with it. Many a one for him makes main, but none shall ken where he is gain. Or his white bones, when they are bare, the wind shall blow, shall blow forever mare. So, wow. the, su so the, the supernatural version is not that terrible supernatural thing happened to this knight. It's that he's entered the realm of the, of the non-human. And so the birds, it's like the robin talking to Proud Maisie. The birds are talking about him because the human part of his life is over. Um, if you want to hear, let's just see. Yeah, here's a, since it's here and it's two minutes long. Do you have the volume up? Yeah, uh, no, I don't. This is Steel Eye Span, part of the terrifying... Where shall we go and dine today? His hawk and his hound and his lady fair. 
shall blow forever. So I'm pretty sure that Steel Ice Band uses um, um, Appalachian melodies because a lot of these ballads survived intact and came to the American um, Appalachian and Ozark regions, and I'm pretty sure that's the melodies that they're using, but I'm not positive. But a lot of these were songs, and when they're written down as ballads, something interesting happens to them, which is in a way they become even more spooky. So, okay, back to Goody Blake and Harry Gill. So you now have a sense of the difference, which is there are no hawks talking about Goody Blake and Harry Gill. Wait, so how do we know these are ballads, then, besides that they're called ballads? Besides that they're called ballads. <laughs> they're, a lot of them are written in ballad meter. That is a very simple meter. It's very, very different. I mean, what it's like is Songs of Innocence and of Experience, okay. and what it's not like is Paradise Lost. Okay. And Blake is really the only serious poet before Wordsworth, and Wordsworth barely knew of Blake's existence, and not this early. Blake wasn't known until the middle of the 19th century, as a poet, except for some of the songs of innocence and of experience. But the major stuff that he was doing, like Milton and the Four Zoas and the Book of Urizen and all of that, was known to a very, very small number of people. He didn't he he wasn't in any of the major literary circles and was known a little bit as uh, more than a little bit, known as an artist, but not as a poet. So what Wordsworth and Coleridge are doing is they're writing a kind of poetry that sounds very simple, deceptively simple, and that's often in ballad meter. The standard ballad meter, I wasn't going to make this class about meter at all, but the standard ballad meter is something called eight and six, which is eight-syllable lines and six-syllable lines. Um, another famous ballad is The Nut Brown Maid, and it begins, Be it right or wrong, these men among on women do complain, affirming this, how that it is, a labor spent in vain, for love them e'er, near so well, yet never a deal, they love them back again. So it's eight, be it right or wrong, these men among, it's, it's got internal rhyme, but it's eight syllables, and then six, on women do complain, affirming this, how that it is, a labor spent in vain. And um, Blake's long lines, we, talk, we did talk about this, are 14ers. And ballads actually come from 14ers, that is 14-syllable lines. And um, what they do is they're 14-syllable lines that start rhyming. And the 14 syllables, 14 syllables means seven feet, right? Everyone understands that? Mm-hmm. That it's iambic pentameter, so each foot is two syllables. 14 syllables means seven feet. It's really boring to break up a line of that length right in the middle, so it tends to break up as eight feet, as, um, sorry, four feet, then three feet. If you break up a line after seven syllables, you're breaking it up after three and a half feet. So breaking up a line right in the middle of a foot means the two lines will be completely asymmetrical. That is, you'll have da-da, da-da, da-da-da would be the first, that would be the first six syllables, and then you would have da-da, 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 da as the second six syllables. And so you wouldn't perceive a meter. But if you go da-da, 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 then you have a very perceptible meter, 
and that's ballad meter. So what ballads tended to do then was to rhyme at the end of the fourth foot or the eighth syllable in a 14-syllable 14 line, 14 line, and then when they printed it, it was just easier to print it as eight and six. Sometimes they're printed as, as um, very long 14-syllable lines, but usually they're printed, and they're always described in the meter as eight and six. So lyrical ballads does a lot of variations on eight and six, um, this isn't an obvious one, but and Wordsworth wrote in more different forms than any other English poet, but the um, basic center of gravity here is eight and six. Okay, so there she is um, in that country calls her dear. So a little bit of information, for they come far by wind and tide, which means there's trade for them. They're coming on ship. And um, what that means is we have a cosmopolitan world in which coals are imported into that country. Okay, um, go on from there, Meg. By the same fire. By the same fire to boil their cottage, two poor old dames, as I have known, will often live in one small cottage. But she, poor woman, dwells alone. Tis well enough when summer came, the long, warm, white some summer day. Then at her door, the canty dame would sit and any linen, as any linen gave. So canty means um, cheerful, and she would sit there like a bird. Okay, um, pick up, Ariel. Um, when the ice our streams did fetter, oh, then how her own bones were chained. So what does fetter mean there? Chain. Chain up, yeah. So the streams wouldn't run. Um, smoothly and freely anymore because it was cold, it was winter, so the ice would fetter the streams. Okay. You would have, you would have said, if you had met her, it was a hard time for good blank. For evenings then were dull and dead. Sad case it was, as you may think, for very cold to go to bed and then for cold not sleep awake. So, think about it, that she has to go to bed because it's so cold to be up. The evenings are so awful and dull and dead. But she go to bed because it was so cold, but it was too cold to sleep. So, not a pleasant life. Um, pick up from there, Tara. <coughs> oh, joy for her, when arrow in winter, the winds at night had made a root, and scattered many a lusty splinter, and many a rotten bow about, oh, that's route. Yeah. You never had she, well or sick, as every man who knew her says, a pile beforehand, wood or stick, enough to warm her for three days. So, um, she, ne she never had enough wood for three days of fire, right? So, that's just great. Oh, joy for her, when air and winter, the winds of night had made a rout and scattered many a lusty splinter and many a rotten bough about. So, why is that good for her? Yeah, so, so the one good thing about the wind was that it would blow down sticks that she could then burn. Um, but she never had enough for more than three days of fire. Um, okay, pick up Olivia. Now when the frost was past enduring and made her poor old bones to ache, could anything be more alluring than an old hedge to Biddy Blake? And now, now and then it must be said, when her old bones were cold and chill, she left her fire or left her bed to seek the hedge of Harry Gill. So um, a hedge would be a place where she could find shelter from the wind and find some warmth. Good. All right, I'll do the next one. Now, Harry, he had long suspected this trespass of old Goody Blake and vowed that she should be detected. 
and he on her would vengeance take. And oft from his warm fire he'd go, and to the fields his road would take. And there at night in frost and snow he watched to seize old Goody Blake. So what do we think of old Harry there? Yeah. Yeah, he's a jerk. Um, so he'd leave his warm fire because he was afraid that Goody Blake was warming herself from the wind in his hedge. Um, go on from there. And once behind a rick of barley, thus looking out did Harry stand. This moon was full and shining clearly, and crisp with frost the stubble land. Stubble land. The stubble. <laughs> Do you know what stubble means there? It means the land after it's been harvested. So the stubble is what's left over after the grain is cut. Um, he hears a noise, he's all awake. Again, on tiptoe down the hill. He softly creeps to his goody Blake. She's at the edge of Harry Gill. Yeah. And um, notice that what's been harvested is barley. So a rick of barley means it's the barley's been harvested, the land is all stubble, and it's a bright moonlit light night, and... Harry hears a sound, so he goes sneaking out to see if he can catch Goody Blake. Ryan? Right glad was he when he beheld her. Stick after stick did Goody pull. He stood behind a bush of elder till she had filled her apron full. When with her load she turned about, the by road back again to take. He started forward with a shout and sprang upon poor Goody Blake. So he's grabbing, she's grabbing twigs, we now find out, either from the stubble or from the hedge itself. And that's why Harry gets to be so pissed off, or why he thinks he gets to be so pissed off. Max? And fiercely by the arm he took her, and by the arm he held her fast. And fiercely by the arm he shook her, and cried, I've caught you then, last. Then Goody, who had nothing said, her bundle from her lap that loud let fall. And kneeling on the stick, she prayed to God that is the judge of all. So there, that's what looks like maybe the entry of the supernatural. So he's grabbed her. He says, I've caught you. Here, you're taking all this, these worthless twigs from me. How dare you? And I've caught you now. And so she prays to God that is the judge of all. Um, go on, Meg. She prayed her with a hand uprearing while Harry held her by the arm. God, court, never out of hearing, oh, may he never be more warm. The cold, cold moon above her head, thus on her knees did Goody pray. Young Harry heard what she had said, and icy cold. So, why, does, why is he icy cold? She cast a spell on him. Yeah, what kind of spell? A Christian spell. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Um, do you think God is making him cold? Yeah, in other words, she, she curses him, and he turns away icy cold. If this were a supernatural ballad, that's not what would happen at this point. What would happen at this point is he would laugh at her, and then he would go home and start making a fire, and it would still be cold, and he would pile wood upon wood upon the fire, and he would still be cold. And... The point is that when he turns away icy cold, he turned away. Listen to what it says, because this is really crucial. Young Harry heard what she had said, and icy cold, he turned away. So 
what's causing him to feel icy cold is hearing what she said. It's not that God does it to him. It's that he hears it. And if you take that as metaphorical, which at first we would, or we might, depending on how much of a ballad we think this is, but it's kind of indicated that it isn't a ballad. You know, it's that country and, and calls come um, through, through trade and through sailing. So young Harry heard what she had said, and I see Caldy turned away. If that were an Austin novel, Darcy heard what Elizabeth said and turned away icy cold, you wouldn't think, yes, that's because God is punishing him for being so arrogant. Um, what you would think is he's having a reaction. He suddenly feels bad. And I think that's narratively what's going on. Icy cold. He heard what she said. He's being cursed by someone that he has just said, ah, I've got you. Um, that is that what he's done is he says to her, there's a competition between you and me and I win. And she then prays to God, and suddenly he doesn't feel that he's won anymore because he feels guilty or feels like it was ridiculous for him to feel successful when she prays to God and curses him. And it's not that the curse is supernatural. It's the fact that he's being cursed that is making him feel cold. That is, yeah. I mean, if she's poor and he's, he seems kind of well off, would he care about what she says? That's to him? the point. Oh, would he care what she says to him? Yeah. I think that, again, if you were making a play out of this, this would be a kind of standard great moment in a play when someone recognizes their own, the evil of their own self righteousness. That is, it's the moment when, when he's shamed. That is, he has caught someone for um, taking some twigs. He's left his warm fire, and he feels really good about himself. Look how cool I am. And then she drops it all and prays to God and, and prays that he should never be more warm. And suddenly he realizes the magnitude of her experience versus the triviality of his own self-righteousness. And so he shudders. That psychologically, I think that's what's happening, is that he shudders. And then, so he turns away, and what is psychological now becomes something ballad-like in the next stanza. Whose turn is it, Ariel? He went complaining all the morrow that he was cold and very chill. His face was gloom, his heart was sorrow. Alas, that day for Harry Gill. That day he wore a riding coat, but not a whit the warmer seat. Another was on Thursday brought. Air the Sabbath, he had three. Yeah, there is, you should be laughing. There is something funny about it. Um, it's partly making fun of him. And um, there is a kind of, of uh, tell the story in a funny way aspect to it, which again cuts against the supernatural. Trois Cobres then had three waistcoats by the Sabbath. Um, it just wouldn't work. Okay, read from there to far. It was all in vain, a useless matter. And blankets were about him pinned, yet still his jaws and teeth they clatter, like a loose casement in the wind. And Harry's flesh it fell away, and all who see him say tis plain, that live as long as he may, he will never be warm again. Yeah, that live as long as live he may, he never will be warm again. Um, so everyone can see that he's going to be cold forever now. Good. 
Oh, look how, how well I planned this. Olivia, the last stanza. No word to any man he utters, a bed or up to young or old, but ever to himself he mutters, poor Harry Gill is very cold, a bed or up by night or day, his teeth they chatter, chatter still. Nothing he farmers all, I pray, a goody boy to bed. So the prayer there is, don't be mean to the poor. And so Max was suggesting this was supernatural. And what this is the one story that Wordsworth tells that he got in the lyrical ballads that he got from someone else. He actually read about this as something that really happened. In fact, does, does the note say that? Does yeah. it tell you any of that? That it's from... Darwin's grandfather. That's right, yeah. So our Darwin had a grandfather who was a naturalist and a poet. Um, his poetry is not so good, but everyone read it because it was full of amazing information. And he was a naturalist. And he tells this story. And he certainly doesn't believe in the supernatural, but he tells it as a true story. So what it actually is, is an illustration of, it's an early illustration of psychosomatic illness. That is, that what happens to Harry Gill is that he himself becomes so disturbed that the curse works by his thinking that he deserves it. Not that God is actually doing this to him, but that he's doing it to himself unconsciously. And so when the ballad ends, and the ballad is good-humored, that's a thing to notice about it, but when the ballad ends, it's now think Ye farmers all, I pray, of Goody Blake and Harry Gill. The word think there really matters. That is, what it means is, this is what can happen to your thought. And this is, thinking can actually make a difference. And what he thinks, what Harry Gill thought, um, this, is, this is what it did to him. I'm taking a very quick look at We Are Seven, which is much parodied, or which is parodied by Lewis Carroll, but it's a really, really great poem. So this is... How does your version start? I can get it out of the Norton, but... A I'm... simple child, dear brother Jim. Okay, so Coleridge told him to get rid of dear brother Jim, which he did. So the standard version will then be a simple child that lightly draws its breath and feels its life in every limb. What should it know of death? Um, and it's so much better without the dear brother Jim, even though it doesn't rhyme. Because it's like it interrupts itself just to really focus you on that. A simple child that lightly draws its breath and feels its life in every limb. What should it know of death? The original stanza was written by Coleridge. He put it, the dear brother Jim, he put at the beginning of the poem. So this is not Wordsworth, but Coleridge. And then it was Wordsworth who got rid of the Dear Brother Jim. So that is um, a collaborative stanza. And then the rest of it is Wordsworth's poem. Okay, why don't we pick up from here on Wednesday with We Are Seven and just keep reading through the lyrical ballads. I wanted you to see the lyrical ballads of 1798, the first version, but read through now the lyrical ballads of 1800 as well, which is longer. So basically read all the poems that were originally in lyrical ballads. Um, it's nothing to Blake. So it's fun. It's easy. And see you on Wednesday.